All right, folks, let's go ahead and get rolling this morning. Let me open us in a a brief word of prayer, and then uh, we will turn to our text this morning. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for another Sunday, another Lord's Day that you have blessed us with. And, oh God, we pray that uh, you would show us Christ this morning and that you would prepare our hearts for holy worship today. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you would teach us, you would send your spirit to work these truths deep within our hearts, and uh, that we would respond with wondrous worship today. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, go ahead and turn to the book of Titus. As you know, we are beginning a series now these past couple of weeks in Titus and 2 Timothy. And uh, the reason why we're going to be looking at at these books is because um, we want to try to get a better understanding of the doctrine of the church. All right, We've had two introductory sessions to this series. Right, We had sort of a, a bigger picture introduction to the church a couple weeks ago. And then last week we had more of a, a focused introduction to the book of Titus. And we want to get a better understanding of the church. You know, Titus and 2 Timothy are part of the broader category of epistles in the New Testament called the pastoral epistles. And those pastoral epistles are sort of, if if you will, pastoral handbooks. They're handbooks on how the church works. It tells you about church officers. It tells you about the structure of the church, the purpose of the church, what uh, the congregants of the church are supposed to do, etc. And uh, so that's why we're looking at these these sections, is because we want to have a better understanding about the church, what it is, how it works, and that's what these epistles are going to do for us. And we're looking specifically within the pastoral epistles at Titus and 2 Timothy. And we're looking at Titus first in this series because Titus was written before 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy is really probably Paul's last epistle that he wrote. So this morning, our text is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read this passage for us. And then I'm going to uh, tell us a little bit about how it breaks down, and we'll work our way through it. Because uh, Titus chapter 1 here, this is Paul's introduction to his letter to Titus. And we'll talk a little bit more about who Titus is in just a second. But these very opening verses of the book of Titus are what you could call a wonderful summary of the Christian religion. This is one of the most wonderful summaries of the Christian religion that we find in Scripture. Very, very succinct. Very, very well put here by Paul. In fact, it's so well put that uh, some people, some scholars, as they look at this text, think that this might have been a very early Christian creed that Paul is repeating here. Or that he might be paraphrasing from or something. A creed that Christians in the very earliest decades of the church were using to confess what they believed about what the Christian religion teaches. And so let's, uh, let me now read this passage for us, and then we'll look at it here. This is Paul's introduction to Titus in this book. So beginning with Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of the elect of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, For the hope of eternal life, which the unlying God promised before the eternal ages and manifested in the appointed times his word in the preaching, which I myself was entrusted with 
according to the command of our Savior God. To Titus, my genuine child, according to our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So you can tell just as I read that text, this is a very succinct summary of a whole lot of stuff. Right? So we want to try to unpack what it is that Paul is trying to say in these, these verses here this morning. Uh, Paul is essentially doing two things. Right? And you can write these two things down if you want to. Uh, the first thing Paul's doing is he wants to give us his identity. Uh, Paul's identity. He wants to tell us who he is. And then the second thing that he does is he gives us his mission. What is he doing? What has he been entrusted by God Almighty to do as who he is? All right, so we've got Paul's identity and Paul's mission. That's our sort of our overarching categories. So let's zero in now, zero in here on Paul's identity. And you can see in verse 1, he is opening up with a couple of titles, a couple of self-designations for himself. You can see, firstly there, he says, Paul, a servant of of God. That's his first title. And he uses that title in a number of other epistles that he, that he has. Now, this title, servant of God, the, the Greek word there behind the word servant is the word doulos. And when we think of, of a servant, right, we think of you know, somebody who serves somebody else. That's the definition of a servant. And that translation is fine here because Paul is saying that he's someone who is serving someone else. Namely, he's serving God. But the Greek word here is a little bit stronger than servant. And it might be helpful just to kind of bring that out a little bit because literally the word here is slave. Paul is a slave of God. And that brings out sort of the, the imperatible force of this word. Because Paul is not simply saying that he is a servant of God in the sense that he just serves God. But he's saying that he is a slave of God. He is bound to the service of his master. In other words, he doesn't have a choice of what he's doing. God has called him so strongly that he categorizes himself as a slave to the Almighty. And in the book of Ephesians, I believe it's chapter 3, Paul will call himself a slave of Christ Jesus. And saying essentially the same thing. He is bound to the service of his master. And there's a sense here, as Paul uses this term, that this actually applies to every Christian. In fact, in other places in the New Testament, we're explicitly told that all Christians are slaves or servants of God. We are all bound to the service of the master. Whatever God is calling us to, that's what we are bound to. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here. So in general, he's saying, I am bound to the will of God. But now then, his second self-designation is even more focused. Because he doesn't just say he's a slave of God. He says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. So now we're moving from the general, a slave of God, like every Christian, to now down to a very narrow office. And this office that Paul is focusing on now is the office of apostle. And I trust that you have 
been here at this church long enough to hear some things about an apostle, right? But I'm going to repeat them anyway because they're important to review. The word apostle literally means the sent one, the one who is sent. And Paul tells us here explicitly who the sender is, right? Because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning that Christ is the one who has sent him. And this word apostle is not just a generic term that means anybody who's sent by God, but it's it's a restricted term to a particular office. The office of the apostle is a very unique calling for a very particular part of redemptive history, namely when the church was being founded immediately after the ascension of Christ. So the, the apostles were at work in that very first century of the church. And the purpose of the apostles is actually highlighted for us in Ephesians 3. And let me just read for you two verses there from Ephesians 3. This is also Paul explaining um, some some things about the church. And he says, verse uh, 4 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so you can see there that being an apostle of Christ means that Paul is not simply just a generic person who's been sent, but rather this is a very specific office, someone who has been entrusted with what he calls in Ephesians the mystery of Christ. That thing which was less clear beforehand, but has now been made clear with much more clarity to the apostles. And the job of the apostles was to take this revelation of God and to deliver it to God's people. And so when the apostles came out and did this, they were not simply giving generic messages, but they had the very revelation of God. And when they spoke, when the apostles spoke, they spoke with the authority of Christ himself. They weren't just paraphrasing Christ's words. They spoke Christ's words. They had his authority. And that, by the way, is one of the main reasons why we put so much stock in this book right here that we call the Bible. Right? Because this is the writings that come to us under the authority of the apostles. These things are the words of Christ. They come to us from the pen of the ones that Christ sent. And Paul here is identifying himself as that kind of person. The one who is sent of Christ, who bears Christ's very authority. And this is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you can read as Paul is telling the Thessalonians about all the good reports that he's hearing about them. He makes it very clear to them. Actually, it might be chapter 2 that he does this. He makes it very clear to them that he rejoices. Because when he as an apostle came and spoke to them, he says that they received his words not as words of men. But as it really is, the words of God. So you can see what Paul's doing there. He's saying, as an apostle, when I deliver the word to you, it ain't words of men. This is the word of God. I bear the authority of Christ himself when I speak. That's the role of the apostles. And they're, like I said, they're restricted to the first century church. There are no more apostles today. The apostles have ceased. They were for the foundation of the church. And you can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so there Paul is limiting the the ministry of the apostles to the foundation of the Christian church. We don't look for apostles today. They have ceased. Right? If we want to know what the apostles taught, if we want to know the words of Christ, we look to this book right here we call the Scriptures. All right? So that's the significance here of this title. And Paul doesn't go into detail here. He just throws it out there. He's expecting his readers to know exactly what an apostle of Christ Jesus is. So we've got to understand that if we're going to get the gist of what he's saying here. So Paul identifies himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he's got this other list of modifiers to his apostleship. He doesn't just stop by saying apostle of Jesus Christ, but he also adds here, for the faith of the elect of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness for the hope of eternal life. And you know, we could honestly do a full series just on these phrases because there's so much rich theology being propounded here. But just to keep things really brief, notice that Paul says he is an apostle for the faith of the elect of God. That is one of his tasks as an apostle is to build up the faith of God's elect. And you can see here Paul's use of this word elect is not unique to this position because he uses this word all over the place. These are the people whom God, before the foundation of the world, has chosen to become his people. Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul uses this term all the time because it literally means the chosen of God. And his task as an apostle is to build up their faith. To build up their faith in his ministry. How does he do that? Secondly, by the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So he's going to build up the faith of God's elect. How? By promoting the knowledge of the truth. So already here we can see that Paul is emphasizing the importance for Christians to have knowledge. And not just knowledge of anything, but to have knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul here is promoting the study of doctrine by Christians. The study of the scriptures and what the scriptures say. Because that's what doctrine is, the study of the scriptures. Understanding what is said here. And the reason why Paul is doing this is because in the scriptures, all over in both the Old and New Testaments, we find that the authors are always emphasizing to us how important it is to be in a steady, lifelong pursuit of understanding the things of God. And we we can never understand God completely. And the scripture is not calling everybody to be a professional theologian or that they need to go to seminary or that they need to go and get a degree in biblical studies at a college or something. That's not the point. But that generally speaking in our lives, that we be a people who is hungry for God's word. That we want to understand what is in this book. Because if we love God, if the love of Christ Jesus is in us, we will want to know him. And we will want to continue to get to know him better. That's what love does. It wants to know the other person. I mean, just just imagine for a second. I know for some of you this may have been a long time ago, and I understand that. But just imagine for a second that you're going on a date with somebody. 
All right? You go on a date with somebody, and you sit down with that person. You're having, I don't know, dinner, you have steak at a fancy place. You sit down with somebody. You're talking with them at this table. And you've been on a couple of dates, so you've kind of gotten to know this person. You have a basic relationship and so on. And you sit down, and to the other person, you say, all right, now just, just listen to me for a second. I have really enjoyed our relationship so far. Right? I feel like I, I have the basic understanding of who you are. You're a pretty good person. I think this relationship can work out between the two of us. I think this will be mutually beneficial. But I just want you to know that I'm, I just don't have time to, to get to know you anymore. Let's just keep our relationship simple. Because if I have to really start to you know, spend my life getting to know you better, learning more about you, learning what makes you tick, learning the things that you love and the things that you don't love, you know, that, that's just a lot of work. I, I just don't want to do that. Let's just keep our relationship simple because then we can avoid complexities. If you said that to someone you went on a date with, how do you think they would respond? Yeah, probably not very well, right? You, they would probably just get up and leave. That relationship would be done. Why? Is it because the other person is incredibly selfish and they just want you to know everything about them? I suppose it's possible, but really, the, for most people, the reason why they would be so upset if you said that to them is because love doesn't say that. Love doesn't say, let's keep our relationship simple. I don't have time to learn more about you. Love says, I want to know you because I love you. That's what Paul's talking about here with our relationship with God. We don't say, I'm sorry, God, your word's complicated. Uh, there's so many controversies and things. I just, I can't understand, so I'm just not going to worry about it. No, if we love God, we want to know his word. We want to be in it. We want to understand what he's telling us. Because this book was written for us. And we should care. Love cares to know the other person. And guess what? God knows you perfectly. It's you that's got to do the work to get to know him. And he calls us to do that. But notice here that as Paul is emphasizing his work as an apostle to build up the faith of the elect and the knowledge of the truth, he doesn't stop with mere knowledge. Because we know that knowledge, strictly speaking, puffs up. Right? And understanding the doctrine of the, the Bible, understanding the teachings of Scripture, is not just about pure intellectual academic knowledge. But Paul says here that this is knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. That is that this is a knowledge of God that doesn't stop in the, in the, the thought process. It doesn't stop in the intellect. But our knowledge of God should, if we're understanding things correctly, filter down through our intellect into our hearts. So that when we understand the things of God, our thought process changes. But so does our life. So does our love. You know, I can tell you from personal experience that there has been nothing that has made Sunday more of a day of sweetness for me than understanding more and more of the things of God. Because the better I understand who God is, the more I understand why we worship 
and why we worship the way that we worship. When we understand who God is, that impacts who we are and what we do. This is knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with godliness. That's Paul's point here. Not a mere academic knowledge, but a knowledge out of true love that impacts the way that we live. So, that's Paul emphasizing his identity here. This is who Paul is. This is his task. A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who builds up the faith of the elect by bringing them the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance with godliness. That's who Paul is. Now, get ready for Paul's mission here, because that's what's coming up in the second part of verse 2. For the hope of eternal life, we'll talk about that in a second, which the unlying God promised before the eternal ages and manifested in the appointed times his word in the preaching, which I myself was entrusted with according to the command of our Savior God. So there you have in a very tight, tightly connected grammatical way, Paul emphasizing what his task is in relation to what God has called him to do. Verse 2 is essentially God's eternal plan. And verse 3 is the historical unfolding of that plan and how Paul fits into it. Now, this is where theology kind of helps us, right? Because if we, if we read this verse, verse 2, for the hope of eternal life, which the unlying God promised before the eternal ages, that sounds kind of weird. What on earth is Paul talking about? That God made a promise of eternal life before the eternal ages. That is, before the foundation of the world, God was promising eternal life. What on earth is Paul talking about here? Paul's talking about a promise that God made before anything existed. This is what Paul, what Paul's referring to here, is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. And you may be familiar with covenants, right? Because we talk about them a lot here. I, I certainly bring them up from time to time. And you know that there are a number of different big picture covenants in the scriptures. Uh, you have what we talk about all the time, the covenant of works, which is the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, promising them eternal life if they obey him. That's why we call it the covenant of works. Of course, they didn't keep that covenant. and We know all about that because uh, we suffer from that. So, covenant of works. We also then have the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is salvation through Christ. Right? Now, the covenant of grace is connected to what we call the covenant of redemption. Don't get those two confused. Right? They're always connected, but they should be distinct theologically. Because the covenant of redemption is a covenant made between God or should I say more carefully, between the members of the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the covenant of grace is the historical unfolding of that eternal covenant between the members of the Trinity. If you go into the Gospel accounts, go into the Gospel of Luke, and turn to, you can turn to chapter 22, verse 23, or excuse me, verse 29. You don't need to turn there. But Jesus there speaks, and he says that the Father covenanted to him a kingdom. The Father covenanted to him a kingdom. And when Jesus says that, 
He is therefore explicitly affirming that there was a covenant made between him and the Father. A covenant made between the members of the Trinity. And Jesus there is emphasizing the eternal plan of God because that's what the covenant of redemption is. It's an eternal covenant made between the members of the Trinity. It is God's eternal plan where the Father gives to the Son everything that the Son needs to accomplish redemption. The Son then comes and accomplishes redemption for God's elect, and then the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to his people. That's the eternal plan of God. That's the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of grace is the historical outworking of that eternal covenant. That's why they're connected. They're not the same, but they are connected. And Paul here is talking about that. He's talking about these covenants. Now, he doesn't use the terminology, but he's talking about the same things. The unlying or the truthful God promised this eternal life before the eternal ages and manifested it in the appointed times. His word in the preaching which I myself was entrusted according to the command of our Savior God. So in verse 2, Paul is saying, I am a part of the plan that God has decreed before the foundation of the world. God promised eternal life in that covenant of redemption, in that eternal covenant before time began. The plan was set between the members of the Trinity about how salvation would be accomplished for God's people. And then in the appointed times, the word, the message of this has been revealed And it has been entrusted to who? Paul says it has been entrusted to him. Now, he wasn't the only one who was entrusted with this message, by the way. You have the rest of the apostles. You also have the prophets of the Old Testament where the same message was entrusted, albeit with less clarity. But here Paul is saying this message was entrusted to me by the command of our Savior God. And so as we talk about Paul's mission here, what is he doing He is saying that he has been entrusted with this message of eternal life that God had orchestrated before the foundation of the world. And he is now proclaiming it in what he calls here the preaching. Now, some of your translations might say in the proclamation. That's that's a perfectly fine translation. But literally the word here, kerubmati, this is the word commonly used for preaching. And so Paul here is elevating the task of the preaching of the word of God. But that's a little bit off topic. We won't cover that this morning. The point that Paul is saying here is that God, from all eternity, planned salvation. He chose his elect. He decided how they would be saved, how the Spirit would apply this salvation to them. And then that plan, eternally designed by God, is now coming to fruition in space and time. And Paul has been entrusted with a task in that grand plan of God. And Paul's task here is the preaching of the word to God's people. That's his task as an apostle. That's his task as a servant of God. That's what Paul's doing. And Paul here hints at how some of this word is working itself out in his address to Timothy here in verse 4. Because Paul's not done telling us about his mission. Paul's also hinting at it here in verse 4 when he addresses this letter to Titus. He says here, verse 4, To Titus, my genuine child, 
according to our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And notice Paul's designation for Titus there. He calls Titus his genuine child. His genuine child. And then he calls him his genuine child according to our common faith. Now that phrase there is very important because you have to remember who Paul is and who Titus is. Paul is a Jew. A Jew of Jews, he calls himself. Trained under the greatest leaders of the Jewish academicians of his day. And Titus is no Jew. Titus is a Greek. And in Galatians 2, we see that Titus is an uncircumcised Greek. So he's a double Greek. He is a serious Greek. And yet Paul here says to Titus, My genuine child, according to our common faith. Paul there is emphasizing that the gospel is not just for him as a Jew, but that the gospel is for the Gentiles. That Titus is of the same faith as Paul. That Paul is an apostle. You remember, Paul is an apostle according to the faith of the elect of God. That same faith is what he's talking about with respect to Titus. Paul is an apostle, not just to the Jews, but he's an apostle to the Gentiles. He is building up the faith of all of God's elect, regardless of what nation or tribe or tongue that they come from. That is what he's saying here. To Titus, my beloved, genuine child, according to our common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father. And then notice this final designation here as we wrap up with this. And Christ Jesus, our Savior. Have we heard anything about a Savior yet in this text? Yeah, we have. We have heard about a Savior at the end of verse 3. Who's the Savior at the end of verse 3? And you can give the answer. Come on. Yeah, that's right. God. God is the Savior at the end of verse 3. Now we get to the end of verse 4. All of a sudden, Christ Jesus is the Savior. Well, hold on. Which is it, Paul? Is Christ the Savior or is God the Savior? Answer? What do you think? Yes. The answer is yes. Because Jesus is God. And you can see Paul here flip-flopping back and forth between Jesus and God. Why can he do that? Is it because he was losing his mind? Was he losing his marbles and couldn't keep track of what he was saying? No. It's because when when, when Paul thinks of God... He thinks of Christ. And when he thinks of Christ, he thinks of God. So when Paul says that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's talking about the same person. Christ Jesus, the Savior, has commissioned Paul to be an agent, to bring about what God had decreed to do before the foundation of of the world. You think Paul had an important task? Yeah, he did. He did. He summarizes the whole Christian religion right here. What God decreed to do before the eternal ages, now he is bringing about in space and time. Namely, eternal life for his people. Praise God for that truth this morning. We're going to continue next week with verse 5 and following. And that's where Paul starts getting into more specifically the doctrine of the church 
And he's going to look very carefully at how the church works, church officers, etc. And we're going to see how some of those things work themselves out and why the church is structured today the way that it is. Um, are there any, any brief questions about this passage before we wrap it up this morning? All right, well, if not, then let me close us in a brief word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for Titus, for this book. But the pastoral epistles are epistles that are not treated as often as maybe some others. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help this study to be beneficial. And that as we, as we read these books, that we would be, we would, quite frankly, that we'd be shocked at how amazing your word is. We pray that you would give us good, solid understanding of the text. And that this would not merely be knowledge that puffs up, but that it would be, as Paul says here, knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And so, O oh God, we pray that through this knowledge of your word and of your gospel, that you would motivate us to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.